Hello and welcome to Super Excited with Stefan Roost. I'm Mike, the facilitator of this podcast. In this episode, Stefan talks to Economizer. Economizer looks at DeFi and crypto from an econ angle. As an anon economist with a PhD who claims to follow the data, not the rumors. In this episode, Stefan and Economizer delve deep into the problems facing the mixed economies of cryptocurrency and fiat. They also talk about how institutional and VC investments are subjects to FOMO, how protocol innovation might be key, and about the great divorce where fiat and crypto economies go their own separate ways. Enjoy this episode. Hey everybody, Stefan here again and super excited as usual to be here with The Economizer, uh, a super um, Twitter user, uh, lots of insights, you know, economist, PhD, and, you know, sort of really goes deeper into some of the topics that you find on Twitter. And that's how sort of I stumbled across you and uh, I'm happy to have you on the show. Thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me, Stefan. Yeah. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, likewise. Uh, you know, sort of, you know, just to start off, you know, sort of, I'm going to ask you a bit of a, a question out of the blue, just to change it up a little bit, sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of what's a hobby that you have and you might want to share that you do with your listeners uh, in your free time <laughs> when you're not behind the computer at Twitter and analyzing uh, all the crypto landscapes? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of sport. Um, so the, the two okay. big sports that I play uh, or participate in are uh, CrossFit and uh, Touch Ooh. Rugby. So uh, oh, wow. uh, I've just really been enjoying getting into that over the last couple of years. And uh, it's just fantastic to get out and uh, exercise after a couple of years of being completely locked down. Yeah, so I'm usually based in Austin or Hong Kong, and um, I go to two CrossFit studios here or boxes. Uh, one is Atomic Athlete in Austin, which is a huge warehouse that they've converted into this amazing gym uh, with all the, the equipment and studios. And then in Hong Kong, it's a place called Ursus Fitness, which is also pretty hardcore, um, and it has, I think, the strongest woman um, in Asia is is a world's strongest woman. I think it is actually works out there as well. So it's pretty cool. Oh, amazing! Yeah it's, yeah, it's fantastic. They've they've cultivated a fantastic community and atmosphere at these yeah. at these boxes. And I did my first um, competition a couple of months ago. Oh wow! It was it was really fun. Uh, so much more fun than uh, back in the day. Just pumping iron in the gym by itself. Uh, I really enjoyed the communal aspect of it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's pretty good. So um, yeah, so they have they have like sort of what a losers or what a palooza or what do they call them? So they oh, have yeah. sort of competitions in, in Australia. Yeah, yeah, you just have these yeah. opens and, and people come along and uh, you compete. It's all just a, a bit of fun, um, do some exercise yeah. and then have a couple of beers afterwards. So yeah, yeah great. Awesome. Yeah, no, so glad we have something else in common beyond <laughs> just crypto. <laughs> um, yeah, look, you know, I think sort of, you know, before we go into it, maybe just I'm going to ask a quick sort of snapshot questions, two, three questions before we go into the sort of economic, you know, economics and, and sort of uh, side of things. But, you know, what was the last movie that you watched? 
It was on the weekend. It was Doctor Strange 2, which uh, was not my favorite Marvel movie, movie, but it was just good to switch the brain off. Okay. Um, so you're a Marvel fan or you like the Marvel type movies? Yeah, I yeah. think they've been doing uh, – it, it's hard to find a bad Marvel movie. So if you just want to switch the brain off and go on a bit of an adventure, it's usually a safe bet. Interesting. Yeah, I know. So I, I, I got into the mobile career really early on and um, we were working with a number. I was at Sun Microsystems and Java was a programming language on the mobile phones. And we were trying to promote applications on Java. And one of the things is we had a big developer community. So we were going to go and license um, the Marvel content for all of the mobile devices to build apps on the mobile phones at the time. And oh, wow. yeah, it was just, it started getting very legal and, and, and very intense. So we decided not to do it in the last minute. Oh, that's a shame. It, but, it could uh, have been massive, uh, I feel. Yeah, it could have been, and I'm sure it would have been. But, um, you know, on that note, right? So you go from movies to comics and then ultimately books, right? And, and given your background in economics and, um, you know, what is your f- favorite book that you've just read lately? And, on what so any topic that you sort of really um, and and what do you recommend uh, reading? Uh, I think uh, this is probably going to be a bit cringy, but uh, I read during lockdown uh, last year "War and Peace" uh, by Tolstoy, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it was the third time I'd attempted to read it, and yeah. um, the the previous two, it was just too many characters to try and conceptualize at once. And what really helped me was watching the BBC TV series about War and Peace. So then you already have an image of the characters instilled and it makes it a lot easier to follow. And I've, I've been struggling to find a book that is up to scratch with, with War and Peace, but I suppose that's why it's got all of the recognition. But uh, no, it was a, an amazing blend of history and, and fiction and philosophy. Thoroughly enjoyed it. So for all the listeners, you can now go and find a new book to read. Or if you don't want to read the book, watch the BBC documentary on War and Peace. So that's something to look out for. Um, I will look out for and watch the War and Peace, especially because I'm in a quarantine hotel right now in Hong Kong and oh. cannot do anything else other than work and then watch uh, watch some uh, interesting documentaries. Uh, there you go. My, my one tip with War and Peace is to find a good yep. translation. So I think some of the earlier translations okay. of War and Peace would translate it into almost like old English, which makes it very difficult to, to follow. And you can get newer translations that translate all of the Russian into kind of common modern day English, which just makes things so much easier to, to comprehend. Okay, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll look at that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, you know, I've, I, I don't know much about War and Peace, but I'm definitely going to find out about it. <laughs> well, we're, we're living through those times. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's definitely rough, rough times or interesting times. But on that thought, right, so one of the things that, um, you know, we're ultimately what I'd love to sort of cover off is sort of really around inflation and, you know, the way governments are running at a macro level, the different quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, um, and on a sort of across all the countries around the world. And they've printed some $33 trillion in the last three to four years um, in and put that into the market under some MMT 
sort of argument or mobile money, modern money theory sort of argument. But before we go into that, maybe just sort of quickly, you know, I mean, economic school of thoughts are, are, are pretty broad. Um, there are different schools. Where would you say philosophically you align yourself most um, and, and, and behind sort of which school of thought? It's, it's a tough question to answer. I think crypto yeah. is really about, um, well, it came out of an anarchist movement. So I think a lot of people in yeah. crypto are quite aligned with the Austrian economic school of thought, uh, which is yeah. uh, very small government intervention. If at all, let the markets run its course um, without much intervention. Uh, I think I'm more towards the Keynesian or new Keynesian um, side of things. I think a, a degree of, of intervention can be helpful in certain circumstances. And I suppose we can get to that. But um, some of the, the more recent events in DeFi have suggested that a degree of regulation or consumer protection could be quite beneficial for uh, smaller investors in this space. So, yeah, I would say more leaning towards the, the Keynesian side of things, but uh, I, I find it hard to pigeonhole myself into, into one specific cat category. Yeah, there was a recent hearing just at the you know lately in um, in Washington, where you know you had Charles Hoskinson from Cardano there, and then you had the chairman I think of the CFTC, and then you had a couple of professors there on the side. Whereas on the one hand you had very strong regulatory thoughts, and then you had on the other hand more sort of I think to your point more the Austrian school of thought, where it was more about how do we let the markets reign uh, um, and 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 um, sort of filter itself out, find itself, and drive innovation, yet provide a certain framework? It's a very tough balance to really drive that. No. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that regulation is inevitable in this space, and it's also holding back a lot of institutional investors. So there's a lot of uncertainty yeah. around regulation. And as soon as that certainty has been addressed, then I think we'll see a lot more interest in the space, leaving aside all of the macroeconomic factors that are taking place in the background. But it is, it is a tough balance. Um, as I mentioned, yeah. the whole premise of crypto and, and blockchain technology was coming out of a form of anarchism. So it, we're in this yeah. space where we need to blend those anarchan, uh, these sort of anarchistic origins of crypto with the more regulatory frameworks that we see in the, the financial services industry. But one of the things that I find interesting is in, in, in whilst we talk about anarchy on the one hand and we talk about you know, consumer protection on the other hand, you know, it's like what I love about the crypto landscape is or Web3, if you will, is that every sort of three to four years, it goes through these rinse, wash out, cleanse, and then, you know, sort of go into the next wave of innovation, if you will. And I think if we wouldn't, without government regulation, we wouldn't, with government regulation, I don't think we would have this it hurts super hard, right? It's very painful as we experience now, as we experience with Mt. Gox, with the Dow hack in 2018, um, with the ICO crash. Um, all of those have hurt really bad for everybody in the industry. But as a result, we've all matured and we've all cleansed the market very clear, cleanly, and were learned that not to repeat those same errors. And I think 
if it was overregulated, we would be repeating those errors again. Do you, and, and so I find it, I, I tussle with, with that um, idealism and I just don't think there is a way in, in anarchy or in free markets to avoid the entrant of, you know, the entrance of, of or the entry of, you know, um, yeah, you know, opportunists or, you know, quick, you know, sort of snake oil salespeople and stuff like that. Yeah, I, it's, it's an interesting point and I completely agree. One of the beautiful things yeah. about crypto and DeFi is that the barriers to engaging in that space are relatively low. So, for example, if you want to start a business in, in the UK or in the US, you need to um, go through all of the legal processes, start a company, find people. Um, usually you co-locate. These barriers add up and um, effectively slow down the pace of innovation. Uh, these barriers don't exist yeah. as much in crypto. and We see rapid innovation. You see protocols that are able to develop three, four uh, products in the in the span of about three or four months, which is a, a pace of innovation yeah. we wouldn't see um, in traditional Anywhere finance else. or outside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But having said that, um, there are some problems with the lack of regulation. Um, and we've seen a lot of this recently. And I, I wrote a post uh, about this yesterday uh, about the pervasiveness of opportunists in 2021 in the DeFi space. And what I meant by that is the media um, is focusing on this narrative during a bull run, usually, of crypto effectively guaranteeing a certain return. It's it's there to make overnight millionaires. And then what you have is a lot of mum and pop investors who don't understand too much about crypto coming into the space, looking for this overnight return. And then you get this huge demand for protocols that uh, promise this type of overnight return. And developers see this and they start developing protocols that are purely designed to extract um, to extract funds from these uh, mom and pop investors that are new in the space. So you have protocols emerging that have no care for sustainability, no care for actually providing something useful or uh, a form of utility. And then you see 1 million percent APYs, uh, you see lifetime rewards, and effectively these protocols disappear with investors' money. And that's a problem. But I think the silver lining with all of this is, as you were saying, investors are cottoning on, they're becoming smarter, and hopefully they're um, uh, doing more due diligence in a lot of these protocols so that they don't make the same mistake again. But uh, it, it's very different to, uh, for example, the financial services uh, landscape in the UK, for example, where if you're a startup and you're offering a financial product, you can get um, protection from the FCA so that if the startup kind of disappears, it, uh, it goes bankrupt, then uh, investors' funds are protected mm -hmm. up to about £85,000. And that is driving a lot more people to uh, financial startups in, in the UK. And I think this form of consumer protection is something that we can spend a bit more time <coughs> looking at, uh, because if we can find a way to do that in DeFi, uh, I think we'll find a lot more funds flowing into that space in the coming months and years. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we've learned at, 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 at the products that we launch is is twofold, right? I think one, on the one hand, you know, in the old days in, in TradFi, you rely heavily on, on the Moody's or you rely heavily on 
a, a price waterhouse or those types of accounting auditors to come in and look at your books. I think in a, in a DeFi world, we spend a lot of our effort rather than on a price waterhouse, more on a coin fabric, a Kudelsky, a, a, a Halborn to really look at our code base and see what are our governance models, do our tokenomics add up and link together. And then at the same time, you now also have great insurance providers like a Unslashed or um, you know, a, a Nexus Mutual that are actually underwriting some of the risk associated with the collateral in a smart contract. And which I find seeing that evolution and new job opportunities and new types of businesses emerge with new career opportunities and new talent that look at a different angle of audit has shifted into a software world. Insurance has shifted into a, 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 a blockchain environment, right? A marketplace, which it actually was originally set out to be. So I find those evolutions interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, hopefully yeah. just providing more confidence to investors to, to come into this space because investor confidence has been badly shaken over the last few months. Yeah, and, and that sort of leads to one thing, right? Whilst on the volume perspective, you look at the market, you've seen a lot of retail consumers and investors be burnt, right? There's no doubt about it. It's been super painful for a lot of individuals that put a lot of money into these different 10,000 APY yields, but uh, or 20% in Anchor Protocol, for example, or in Celsius uh, and stuff like that. But then on the flip side, I also argue from a, a dollar amount perspective, a large portion of the suffering is with institutional investors, right? So the smart money, you have people like Three Arrows Capital that were going to hedge funds and big institutional investors and borrowing from them and using that as a collateral to hedge and, and earn and promise yields on the other side. So every time they promise yields to get these hundreds of millions of dollars from these big institutions that are Wall Street, right? These are the people that are educated in these financial instruments. They study them. They have analysts. They have teams. And they are professional accredited investors that are the ones that I feel really abused this, especially in this downturn, really sort of were the ones that really took us down an angle and all of a sudden extracted all of the liquidity out of the market. Yeah, it's absolutely shocking uh, and incredibly disappointing. Yeah. And I would love to hear a little bit more about what actually went down when more of this information emerges, because at the end of the day, taking a step back, we as retail investors think that the inst institutional investors have the strategies in place to mitigate against these yeah. sorts of problems. But it seems like that's not the case. Um, is it was it greed? Uh, was it something else? Um, was it just bad decisions? Uh, I would love to know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, and we'll find out, right? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I just have my hunch, which I think it is partially greed. Um, you know, I mean, Wall Street does have a reputation for being barbarians at the gate, or you know, wolves of Wall Street, or <laughs> the shark tank, you know, so, um, so it, it does have a bit of a, they smell blood and they, and they go for it. And then on the flip side though, um, I think it's also, 
you know, oh, FOMO, right? A lot, a large portion is FOMO. Oh, they went in and they're working with this company. They must be reputable because we both went to Goldman Sachs together. So we trust these guys or we used to work at JP Morgan or whatever it is. And we'll trust these guys and we'll give it to them and they'll they'll work it out for yeah. us, right? It's, it's funny that you um, say that because the reputation of institutional investors is they don't succumb to emotions. It's, it's very black and white. Uh, you have a strategy in place. You execute yeah. the strategy. FOMO shouldn't come into it, but I've had experience uh, running startups and, and dealing with VCs, and I can tell you, VC funding is almost entirely based off FOMO. If you can drum up some sort of um, some sort of interest, um, people talking about you, that will effectively just attract VC investment. So uh, I, I don't know if we can ever really escape our emotions. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why, you know, sort of, I don't know, in crypto, you know, I, I mean, even in my signature, in my emails, I have D-Y-O-R, right? So no matter what I say or what I write, I just find it so important for us to do our own research, right? To learn about what is right, what is wrong, what are other people doing? Go get your information and figure out what is right for you. Um, you know, how do you feel about that and, and, and sort of, how and where do you find, you know, I believe that if you do your own research, you know, in a web, in the World Wide Web, we have access to all this information and we can educate ourselves, right? And we can participate in these opportunities that pre-crypto days or pre-Web3, um, uh, if we call it Web3, they weren't necessarily accessible to all of us. And so how do you balance that, you know, and, and sort of, yeah. Yeah, and and does that really have an economic impact to a community? Yeah, the the question of do your own research is is quite interesting. Something that I've been trying to wrestle with, and my gut instinct actually yeah. is that, particularly last year, there were a lot of investors, these mom and pop investors, who were looking for that overnight return, that just treated crypto yeah. as, hey, I'll just put you know one percent of my net worth or two percent of my net worth into something that promises me a million percent APY. I don't really need to do your own yeah. research. And um, in 2021, there was so much money going around the economy. Everyone was was completely leveraged. Everyone had flush. With yeah, money. exactly. Yeah. Um, cheap money was going around, low interest rates. And so yeah. people were willing to take that risk. And I would love to know what percentage of crypto investments were made up from those mom and pop investors who had put aside a couple of percent of their net worth just to you know, effectively play lottery with crypto. Um, so for these these types of investors, research is not really part of the equation. They they didn't really want to do that. Um, they didn't have time for it. They yeah. were busy doing other things full time. And where do you start? Which leads me to the next thing, uh, the next point, which is how do you do your own research? Um, and it can be quite daunting um, because most people are uh, quite quite challenged by technology, um, which makes sense, right? It's, it's complicated. Um, they can be intimidated by it. Yeah. So what ends up happening is people defer their investment decisions to, to quote unquote influencers who are paid to effectively shield yep. products and protocols, but the investors have no idea that that payment is taking place in the background. Um, and we've seen many instances of these quote unquote influencers promoting a, a protocol and then dumping on their investors, uh, effectively treating their audience as exit liquidity. Um, so what I would love to see is more financial education coming out, actually 
taking through people, yep. Yep. Uh, taking people through the exact process of what it lo looks like to be doing your own research. Um, what do the tokenomics looks like? Look like um, what does a vesting schedule look like? What are the emissions rates? What are the what what is the purpose of the token? Is it there to be exchanged, or is it there to to be held? And will it uh, accrue value, or is it inflationary? Uh, these sorts of questions, uh, I think, people could use a, a very useful framework um, to really try and do their own research. Yeah, there were some really good tools in the old, and I don't know if they're still out there, but I remember earn.com, right, where you could go through a whole course and then you would earn in tokens for going through the course and learning about that specific protocol, right? Um, see, CoinMarketCap tried to do something similar to that, where they would you would have a bounty out there that if you did that course, you would then earn some of those native tokens, which I thought were good ideas and good ways to incentivize people to learn because on the one hand, you know, sort of, yeah, it, it's a bit of work. You have to use your brain. You have to allocate the time. Or I can just sit on my phone and go through TikTok and, and, and just watch kitty catties. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I mean, in a way I feel, you know, we, we are in a capitalistic society and, and, you know, everybody has the right to choose. If you like the kitty cats and, and you like to watch TikTok, that's great too, right? Um, but if you like to educate and stimulate your brain and, and put some effort into it, there should be opportunities coming out of that for you and you should ultimately be rewarded for yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think uh, also, as we discussed previously, many people have been affected by protocols that have gone belly up yeah. in the last few months. And I think this is yeah. a real wake-up call to a lot of investors, which will hopefully also incentivize them to take that do your own research component way more seriously. And there's also uh, some interesting innovations taking place as well. I've seen websites like Token Sniffer, for example, where you can paste in the contract yep. address of a token and they'll do an automated vetting of the contract, um, which is again, reducing the barriers to people doing their own research. So uh, a very useful resource out there. There you go, you guys. Check it out. Token Sniffer. Is it Token Sniffer? I think so. Is that the yeah, one? I think so. But if you if you put it in Google, yeah. it'll, it should be the first yeah. result. It should be the first result. There you go. So check that out, guys. Um, a nice, nice, nice alpha there. <laughs> um, but but one thing, one thing is is I find you know so education I think is really important for any society anywhere in the world, right? So it's really the onerous, I think of the um institutions that are out there and the governments or the regulators to really help with an education you know we do that when we do driving when you go scuba diving you know when you go sailing uh all of these things you have to go through a course when you do crossfit you don't just go to the gym and lose a huge weight you go you have a trainer he tells you how you slowly grow the muscle bound and then you get sort of stronger and heavier and then you sort of grow into that and you learn how to do that. Your PT, your coaches, they all go through a training program before they can coach you, right? And so I feel that why can we not do that for every day in life and everything in life, right? So that just investing in crypto, you just need to do a little course, right? It doesn't need to be too onerous or bound. How do you do your own research, right? You do you know, you go through this, this simple questionnaire very much like you can do driving and you should be able to do that at a much younger age when you go to school. So once you can start doing maths, maybe at 12 or 
13, you should be able to do a quick course and start with basic financial education. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we saw some heartbreaking um, stories of people in Ukraine, for example, putting their entire savings on Anchor Protocol in, in order to ensure they had liquidity and completely losing that. So yeah. financial literacy around diversifying your assets, these types of um, basic concepts really need to be taught. Um, also, I, it's it's quite interesting because crypto has um, one of the, the most impressive use cases for crypto is all around financial inclusion. It's providing financial opportunities to people who were previously excluded from these systems. So you go to a place like exactly. you go to a place like Afghanistan, right, where the where women are no longer allowed to engage in um, in financial society, they're not allowed to, to have jobs and crypto doesn't discriminate. It allows them a place to participate. However, I'm a little concerned that the educational material that's coming out is in English, for example, when really it would be fantastic yeah. to, to see this information being communicated to uh, different people across the, ro uh, across the globe in different languages with different um, cultures and customs. And uh, I think we'll get there. It's just a matter of time. But uh, would love to see more on that front. Yeah, do you not find with the open source initiative and, and a lot of the communities online today that I find or you can see a lot of the translations already happening automatically and that same content being made available in so many different languages very quickly. Yeah, exactly. And, and also on Discord, you see a lot of protocols having uh, language specific yeah. channels to then, yeah, exactly, facilitate yeah. communication. So that's fantastic. And then they have ambassadors, you know, it's like, I mean, oh, I mean, yeah, Bitcoin.com, we had ambassadors around the world. I know Binance have their angels around the world. All these protocols actually have different ambassadors to help with the communication, the translation, the education in those given markets with those specific communities who then in turn organize meetups, right? They get people together, they talk about it, they learn from each other, and they learn from experienced trusted groups where they actually get to meet in person at these specific communities, which I find is another way to do, do your own research and before you just ape yeah, in. Absolutely. But coming back to sort of economize, you know, sort of you an economist and, and sort of the education, which is an important role that I feel every government has to take on. And it is to educate people to be smart and push their brains a bit further versus just telling them to, you know, rubber stamp a piece of paper and manually do that 15,000 times a day, eight hours a day, 365 days a week. Um, you know, a, a year, sorry. I mean, I just don't feel that is the right kind of talent and the best use of a government's uh, role in an economy. It is much more to really drive and educate the users so that they can use their brain and we can be and live in a logical environment and a connected society, number one. But also number two is I just find, which comes back to the economic side, economist side uh, of the conversation where, we had governments that made us, you know, got us drunk at the, you know, not at the party because we didn't deserve a party. We got, they got us drunk at, you know, and depressed at the same time because we had to be locked up at home. We weren't allowed to be as productive as we usually are. Uh, we couldn't go to work. We couldn't be factories. You know, we had to stay at home uh, and we got given all of this money. And wasn't that in a way also partially irrational? from these 
experts that are out there, these highly educated, you know, sort of, you know, PhD, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of people that we sort of look up to and, and sort of say, oh, they're looking after us. We can just relax. Um, how do you feel about that? And, and, and is that not a bit of a, a misrepresentation or a mis, miscalculation for us to just rely and sit back on, you know, experts? Um, yeah, I mean, how do you was, feel about uh, that? it was an interesting couple of years. Um, some parts of the world, namely China, are, are still in it. Um, and I think part of the problem also was just uh, a fear of the unknown. And so people were fixating on uh, metrics like uh, the, the number of cases um, uh, with COVID rather than the number, number of hospital admissions, uh, which might have been a, a better metric to um, try and target. So, yeah, uh, it's just uh, in times of um, extreme stress, there's, uh, there's extreme um, panic and sometimes extreme decisions. But, uh, yeah, it's, it was crazy to live through. Um, I think a lot of people lost trust in governments, um, particularly around the messaging yeah. of this. Uh, it was it was framed as if it was an existential threat to humanity, and you know it was obviously very severe. And it would have been severe if hospitals were completely full and uh, people with with yeah. severe injuries yeah. or illnesses couldn't be treated. But um, there was this real fear instilled, and that's what made me really uncomfortable is how effective governments can be at instilling fear in populations. It's not just around um, pandemics. It can be around other things like we've seen with terrorism, for example. This was quite big in Australia, where, where I'm from, uh, back in about 2014, 2015. Um, and it's hard to, to think rationally uh, when you're hearing these types of messages from, from governments. Yeah, and I think that's 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 sort of led to um, uh, yeah. I mean, just just really, I think partially why um, we launched. I mean, Trueflation.com. We just didn't believe the government anymore, and there was this inherent mistrust in terms of their ability to navigate the complexity that we live in in a global economy, or now much more. You know, these big, you know. Um, monolithic organizations washington dc the imf the world economic forum and 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 sort of you know brussels um and, and and sort of all of these big idb all these big institutions that are out there um that really have sort of in a way lost touch with actually what's going on in the real world you know how is your population in on the street dealing with this issue is price going up really you know it's seven dollars a gallon in the u.s versus just you know three dollars a gallon in that it was you know sort of a year ago and so you know that and then you're saying inflation is only eight percent but actually gas prices have doubled right and so how and then we can exclude in the core cpi we don't include energy and we don't include food anymore it's like but isn't that core to our survival you know <laughs> Um, so it's just funny how um, the governments have dis learned the master of distortion. And partially that's, I don't know, uh, you know, it's sort of my view, at least, is that it's because of, um, yeah, just professional politicians. Yeah, there's, there's also an element to the government where they're very bad at embracing innovation. So 
Um, the way that inflation yeah. is calculated, uh, you know, you take a survey of about 80,000 people and you ask them, what do you, what do you purchase? And then you need to make sure that that 80,000 person survey is actually a representative sample in the US, for example, they only survey people in urban areas. So they're excluding all rural populations. And, and then they try and get pricing data on that basket of goods that they derive. But, you know, using big data, um, you know, there's so much data at our fingertips now in this increasingly digital world, I think we'll be able to provide a much more precise estimation of what that basket of goods is and how those prices in that basket are actually behaving. Um, and part of the reason for this slow embrace of innovation is just how governments operate and the incentive for governments. And I'm talking about, you know, the, the bureaucracy rather than the executive, rather than the, the politicians, the actual um, the, the mandarins, yeah. as they're called uh, in Australia, they're incentivized to just make sure that nothing goes wrong. Because if something goes wrong, you're blamed yeah. and uh, you'll get hung out to dry. And no bureaucrat wants that. So the best way of ensuring that you're not blamed is by doing things in the exact same way that they've always been done, which is the complete opposite to innovation, which by definition is about finding newer and better ways of, of doing something. So we see this real slow embrace of any type of innovation. And as a result, um, we can find issues with things like inflation figures. Um, again, like the US is a huge country. You need to make sure that inflation captures all 50 states as well as all of their territories. And there's so much divergence within states. These are, are countries in and of themselves. And so to come up with an accurate metric really needs um, very, very um, precise data um, that I believe we can get from big data and advanced um, mathematical and statistical models, which I'm sure we can improve. In Australia, in about 2014 or 2015, the, uh, the Bureau of Statistics was incredibly underfunded. And so their, their statistical software was just hanging together. It was kind of band-aided together. And they found out that there was a couple of coding errors that had meant that some of the unemployment data was not seasonally adjusted properly. And so when they found this out, they had to revise many years of data and it was this huge debacle. And this is in a, a very developed country that, that we're seeing this type of thing. So it, um, it, it, yeah. I, I'm sure that this is uh, much more prevalent than many of us think. So this is why it's great to continually try and innovate to uh, provide more precision. I mean that's that's what we're trying to do with Trueflation.com, and 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 we've now really sort of tried to open source that as well. But rather than going into you know the new technology that we're building, I want to sort of dig deeper into that topic, right? Where now you know inflation is such an important part of any economy, and it impacts everything pretty significantly. Um, and if we look at in you know inflation, I mean what the way. At least in the U.S., they've publicly announced that in bringing inflation down to two percent is the primary objective, and pretty much at all costs, right? Um, to the sacrifice again of the retail investor. So you know they, they they don't really mind about sacrificing the retail investor. But I think you've publicly stated that you're not sure that these interest rate hikes are going to solve the inflation problem. And I'd love to maybe flesh that thinking out for us and, and, and sort of share what your thinking is behind that and, and why yeah. you think that. So to really flesh that out, we need to understand what's causing inflation in the US. And 
the causes of inflation in the US are a little yeah. bit different to the causes of inflation in the EU. But one of the biggest causes of inflation yeah. in the US is from the fiscal response. So you had um, quantitative easing where um, the, the US Treasury was issuing a lot of debt and that debt was effectively being purchased by the Federal Reserve who were printing money to purchase that debt. So all of a sudden people have um, excess capital. They have um, more money in their pocket, which means that there's more demand for goods and services, which then bids the price of these goods and services up. Um, you've also got what's known as a tight labor market. So you have much more demand for labor than supply. And we're in a situation right now where there's about yeah. 1.7 job vacancies for one unemployed person. So that's, that just means that the US um, economy and labor market is incredibly strong. And what, what happens when you have a very strong labor market is yeah. that uh, employees can bid up their wages. So they can say, hey, there's there's a shortage of us. Um, we want more money. We want to be compensated. And uh, yeah. what if effectively happens is firms pay them more and they pass on those costs to the consumers of the products that they manufacture or they provide, which then increases the price of these products, which is another cause of inflation. Um, so then those are what I call kind of demand side um causes of inflation, but there are all these supply side causes of inflation, which are effectively created by external or exogenous factors. And this is uh, the war in Ukraine, for example, which a lot of countries are responding by uh, putting sanctions on Russia, particularly around their energy. So all of a sudden, Russian energy is taken out of the market, which causes a huge contraction in the supply of, of energy, of, of fuel and gas which creates a surge in the price of fuel and gas. Then you have um, supply chain issues caused by um, Chinese lockdowns, for example, where um, lots of goods are stuck in Chinese ports, for example. There's a shortage of ships going around, which again, pushes the price of these, these products up. And in addition to that, uh, you have upwards pressure on food uh, that's caused by uh, natural disasters, as well as um, the war in Ukraine, where that region is a huge producer of wheat. Um, so all of a sudden, the supply of, of agriculture is diminished, again, pushing the prices up. So what happens when the Federal Reserve increases interest rates is that it stems demand, it reduces demand. And that can mean that uh, and, and what they've said, and this is quite ambitious, is that they want to bring this ratio of job vacancies to, to unemployment down to a one-to-one -one level, down from 1.7 vacancies per unemployed person. And they think that they might be able to manage to do this without throwing the whole US economy into a recession. And that's probably wishful thinking. But the real problem here is that interest rates are affecting the demand side. And I've listed a number of supply side factors yep. um, related to energy prices, food prices, consumer good prices, that interest rates are not really targeting. They're not addressing the root cause of these problems. And that's why I'm, I'm concerned that if the Federal Reserve is really serious about this 2% interest rate target, then they're not able to effectively deal with the root cause of the problem by just hiking interest rates. So what I'd love to see, and I'm sure something like this will occur, is the Fed says, okay, we're going to be more comfortable with uh, a higher interest rate target, maybe 4% or 3%. Because don't get me wrong, interest, uh, inflation rather is terrible for the, the society because it affects everyone. It makes everyone um, much worse off. Everyone. Income is worth, worth less. Savings are worth less. Okay. 
it's like another tax, right? I mean, it's like another exactly, form of taxation. Exactly. And a lot of economists are then debating, well, yeah. inflation impacts everybody, whereas unemployment affects much less yeah. people. So does it make sense to aggressively target inflation um, with this collateral damage of unemployment? Um, what is better for the society at large? So um, again, I'm, I'm concerned that interest rate hikes are not going to address the root cause of these supply side issues causing inflation, but um, they will address some of these de demand side factors that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, so I'm sure we'll see a decrease in inflation. I just don't think we'll get down to that 2% level. So one of the topics that's coming up now a lot is is ultimately stagflation, right? So that means basically an economy basically stagnates, so doesn't grow, just stays flat, and inflation is 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 pervasive, right? And you know, coming back to your thinking, where you know interest rates not going to change anything, so that means inflation's still going to be there because gas prices are still high. We still have supply chain issues, um, and 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 all in you know and. And ultimately, nobody can really borrow to invest in innovation, in R&D, to really try and grow an economy and build fundamental issues. Um, you know, how are we going to get out of this? And, and, you know, the governments are, you know, on the one hand, you know, the Bureau of Statistics or the Bureau of Labor and Statistics in the U.S., you know, they're sort of painting a picture um, you know, curating, let's call it curating the inflation numbers, right? Um, that we just can't really trust anymore because they have a vested interest uh, in driving that. I mean, how do you, uh, how do we get out of this sort of this cycle, if you will? It's going to be very hard. And will we be in this cycle for a number of not. years? I think most most economists are thinking that the economy will recover probably in 2024. Uh, is when we'll start seeing a semblance yeah. of, of what we saw in, in 2021. Um, but it's, it's a tough question. I yeah. think in, without a doubt, um, increasing interest rates is going to reduce inflation. It's just to what extent is that going to happen? I think maybe it might halve inflation, yeah. but that's still very high inflation, historically speaking, that we're left with. Um, and to go back to one of your earlier yeah. points, what would, would what we really need to see is more supply being generated, right? And it's hard to generate more supply when you've got incredibly yeah. high interest rates that are dampening the economy. You need more food being produced. You need more energy being produced or a transition to other forms of sustainable energy, for example, to replace uh, what has been taken out of the market. Um, so it's going to be tough. I think it might uh, involve some sort of international relations uh, appealing to OPEC, for example, to try and increase energy supply. But I mean, OPEC yeah. are uh, enjoying these incredibly high um, fuel fuel prices, so yeah, the incentive sure. is not really there for them. Yeah. Uh, so it's a it's a tough situation, and I think our, our biggest hope is just to be a bit more comfortable with higher rates of inflation than we've historically had to potentially abandon this two percent target. Um, but you know. Again, 5%, 6% is not really acceptable for, for most people, um, particularly if wages are not meeting that and interest rates are provided to, to savings accounts and not being passed on to investors. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I really, you know, one thing what I, I love and where I see, and I'm, 
you know, I, I, I'm really super excited, right? I, I, and that's why I called, called, we call this show Super Excited, because I think it's the best time to be alive, because there's so much innovation happening and so much change, and change results in opportunity. And whilst a large constituent of the global population is still not happy or uncomfortable with a lot of change, particularly regulations and governments and institutions that we have out there, they don't like change because that means they need to reorganize these huge tanker organizations to to meet this new changing, constantly innovating and constantly changing environment. But on the flip side, if I look at, at cryptocurrencies and I look at Web3, the amount of innovation, the amount of investment that's coming into this environment, that's creating new jobs, creating new types of jobs um, and, and, and a whole new opportunities that I think we never saw um, five years ago or even 10 years ago, um, you know, we did when before Bitcoin, before crypto, uh, we didn't even know that jobs like, you know, or new blockchains, new coins, new funds that these protocols have established and created new innovation around that um, has really created a, a, a number of jobs and opportunities that I think now in aggregate is employing or creating jobs for about 20 million yeah, people it's, worldwide. It's, uh, incredibly impressive, and it's only going to increase with time. I'd say job creation aside, also the innovation in yeah. terms of protocols is fantastic because I think a lot of people have okay. historically said that crypto is an inflation hedge. And you look at Bitcoin and it's and it's not really an inflation yeah. hedge. It's, it's far too volatile for that. But what we're seeing, exactly. And, and so what we're seeing is <laughs> a lot of protocols actually putting their brains to creating a true inflation hedge. And these sorts of opportunities and these types of innovations are incredibly exciting for me. Um, I, I know you, you've chatted. Yeah, I was just going to so say, I know, think, I know you've chatted with the Frax guys. Yeah, go ahead. They're working on something with, um, with I think, the FBI yeah. token. Uh, Wand Investments as well uh, yep. are working yep. on something, the Scepter token. So I think these innovations are really going to fill that gap of a, a true inflation hedge. One, I'll, I'll have a look. I'll have to. There you go. Another two interesting protocols: FPI and and Wand and their Skepter uh, token. So interesting. I'll look at those two. But I mean, do you think one thing that a lot of people, you know, sort of, we're going in. So that means sort of like the next two years or 2023 is going to be a, a, a you know the rest of 22 and 23 are going to be tough years um, in a sort of fiat environment. Whereas I don't feel necessarily that same drag in the crypto market but i mean ultimately we are in a bear cycle in the crypto or the winter we come into a winter and i think we've just entered into the winter and we're going to be flatlining for a little bit before we then sort of start picking up and realizing that actually the opportunity is here and there is a lot of innovation and there is a lot of development and progression um taking place in the crypto market but one question we always ask is will there be a bifurcation between the crypto and the fiat markets right we've been running very very you know sort of in parallel to the stock markets and the price of stocks uh, or you know stonks as, as some people might like to refer to them um do you think that we will start to separate in that environment or do you think the tech stocks will also start going up in conjunction and in aligned with the yeah, recovery. Look, I, I really hope so. And that needs to be the aim of all of the innovators in this space. Uh, because right now, most people just lump yeah. stocks and crypto into a big basket of quote unquote risky assets. 
And um, what I'm really excited about for the yeah. bear market is that exactly. there's less mom and pop investors coming yeah. into this space, which means that devs are not developing effectively junk protocols to try and extract investments from these people who want overnight returns. And instead, if these yeah. if these investors aren't coming in, they can focus on developing real utility. And so my hope is over the next two years, we're going to see uh, an acceleration of innovation in the space so that next time the bull market comes, um, we'll see a lot more innovative, sustainable, long-term protocols emerging. And if during the next bull market, we can demonstrate in the crypto space that we have really interesting, innovative, reliable products and reliable services, then I think the decoupling will occur. But I don't see a decoupling occurring uh, before the next bull run. Yeah. I mean, I sort of tend to, you know, mentally agree, you know, of the $33 trillion that were printed over the last couple of years, uh, by these governments, you know, somebody was saying that 95% of that went into, you know, um, the, 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 sh the stock markets, right, and the financial instruments and financial products. So actually, it sort of defeated the whole purpose in terms of building out new infrastructure, getting the economy ready for a greater future, uh, investing in R&D, uh, new product innovation and stuff like that. It went into stocks, bonds, and ultimately into crypto. And um, as we see that retraction that came out, and, and like you mentioned, there's a, a, a risk capital allocation of that 33 trillion that goes into that market, e.g. tech stocks, crypto assets, and, and that is now being pulled out, right? What, where do you pull first? Exactly. You pull in those risk class assets, and that's why you're seeing tech stocks go down, crypto go down, and then oil, and and all those other companies go up, right? I mean, um, and there's a reason for that, right? Um, anyway, um, because they've been suffering in in this in this downturn, um, where the tech has been going up uh, in this flush market. Sorry, not downturn. But that sort of leads me to another element, right? Where I think I noticed, you know, sort of you're talking about longer term protocols that are building more sustainable products that are committed to this industry and to really build out protocols that have longevity, really, right? And one of those protocols is really interesting and that have been around for a long time and have continued to innovate mm. um, is Bancor, right? And I know that's sort of something that you tend to write quite a lot about. And you know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, their innovation, I mean, they've innovated a lot in terms of AMMs, in terms of trying to change AMMs and innovate in automated market makers, by the way, for those that don't know what AMM is. But they've also bought, built out this in V3, this impermanent loss protection, right, uh, which was a really interesting element associated with AMMs, right. Um, and, and, and maybe sort of, you know, and, and, and why they've suspended that i mean ultimately because there's so much uh extraction out of the market uh maybe sort of maybe you share your ideas in terms of uh what you think about that protocol itself and and, and why that issue of impermanent loss and the extraction and the retraction and the suspension of the impermanent loss protection yeah, has I'm, disappeared. I have a lot of respect for the Bangor guys. Uh, I've seen some of the, the mathematical modeling that they do behind yeah. the scenes to, to calculate um, uh, impermanent loss and um, pricing their assets and their liquidity pools. And it's incredibly thorough and incredibly impressive. 
But that said, I'm very concerned about the future of Bancor, and it's to do with this impermanent loss situation. So taking a step back, um, I can provide a bit okay. more color on, on what Bancor does. Yep. The main innovation was allowing yeah, um, liquidity providers, so people like you or me, to do single-sided depositing of tokens um, to provide liquidity. So traditionally, in normal AMMs like Uniswap, you have to pair a token exactly. So that might be Ethereum with USD or something like yep. that, which effectively forces liquidity providers to be exposed to a second 50, asset 50. when really you might not want, want to have exposure. So the way that yeah. Bancor created single-sided staking was quite ingenious. They did this in their version two, was every single token was paired with their own native token yep. called BNT. And so if I wanted to provide ETH, I would deposit yep. ETH on Bancor and they would mint out of thin air, effectively, um, the equivalent in US dollar value of their own BNT tokens. And without going into too much detail, it's very important to have at least one other asset in a liquidity pool to price the the um, the token. So, for example, if someone comes in and purchases a lot of Ethereum from a Uniswap liquidity pool, the, the price of Ethereum goes up because there's um, there's less supply of that Ethereum. And that then encourages arbitrages exa exactly to come in and say, hey, look, I can buy Ethereum on Binance where it's cheaper and then sell it and make a profit on Uniswap and, uh, and pocket that. So it's this really clever sort of incentive system yeah. that they've designed. But anyway, back to Bancor, um, every single token or non-native token was paired with their BNT token. Um, and it was matched by this printing of BNT tokens that I mentioned. Um, so what happens is every time there's a transaction, um, BNT, um, sorry, Bancor make, a, well, they used to make a profit um, through fees, for example. And so if there's, if someone is swapping Ethereum, yep. for example, for um, Bitcoin, the way the transaction would work is they deposit Ethereum, yep. Um, they behind the scenes get BNT, BNT is then swapped for, for Bitcoin, and then they receive Bitcoin. And on those transactions, um, yeah. Bancor would receive a little bit of Ethereum um, through fees and whatnot. This is how um, a lot of these liquidity providers work. Yeah. They would put their Ethereum into effectively a vault. Um, yeah. So you can think of it as an insurance vault. And if someone suffers from impermanent loss, yeah. they can tap into that vault and then pay someone um, so that they aren't experiencing impermanent loss. So it's effectively a type of insurance. But what happens if yeah. there isn't any money left in that vault yeah. is that they would just print or mint BNT tokens and then <laughs> give that to a person. So they say, hey, you've had $10 of impermanent loss. We don't have enough Ethereum to give you that $10. So we're going to print $10 worth of BNT and give that to you instead. So the person that receives BNT can will effectively just sell that BNT immediately to purchase Ethereum or US dollars. And what's happened now is they're in this almost debt spiral situation where there's no money left in their vaults. And in order to compensate people for impermanent loss, they need to print BNT, which then leads to a lot of people dumping BNT. And as I mentioned, if a lot of people are dumping BNT, every single token is paired with BNT, which causes more impermanent loss, which then means they need to mint, exactly, they need to mint <laughs> more BNT and it can effectively end the protocol. So they've, that's the reason that they've paused impermanent loss protection. Yeah. I mean, it's the logical thing to do, 
But what I'm concerned about is more and more people yep. dumping BMT. So three hours capital Celsius, for example, holds a lot of BMT. Um, they'll be trying to get as much liquidity yep. back as possible. So that would then create, if they sell off their BMT, yep. a lot of impermanent loss, which might mean that liquidity providers don't want to take the risk and um, withdraw all of their liquidity from the platform. And so Bancor could be in this position where there is no liquidity on that platform. Uh, which could spell the end. So this is a really sad example of really brilliant innovations taking place in this space, but just finding out the flaws of that innovation yeah. the hard way. And uh, protocols that come along afterwards will we'll learn from yeah. these mistakes, but um, it's, it's sad to see such an innovative, impressive protocol in this position. And it's a very smart team, right? I mean, they've been around for a really long time. They've innovated, like you said, super, uh, you know, super smart people that have really built out these models. Um, but then on the flip side, for the overall community, I mean, I would argue that for the overall Web3 world, this is a huge leap forward in terms of the learning about this, right? In terms of just what you've highlighted, right? How do we now build protections around these? And what are the buffers that we need to build in place in terms of being able to, so you can't just offload your impermanent loss protection. Maybe it goes into a buffer phase where it gets locked up until, you know, some sort of volatility bandwidth and it can only stay in that. And if it doesn't go beyond that, then it just gets locked up until it's released or something like that. But that then does prove a layer of exactly. delay in I'll be very right? interested to see some of the innovations that yeah. come out of these learnings um, so that that is the exciting part of, of crypto yeah. people learn and they learn very quickly um, very quickly right and I think also partly because it's open source right I mean a lot of this innovation is happening in open source software and the community is very quick in disclosing the issues the flaws and the remedies that they would recommend in terms of fixing that. And those are all public. Those are go up in immediate uh, you know, medium posts or blog posts or disclosures on GitHub, the code becomes available. And ultimately that really drives the industry forward and, and provides the innovation for yeah, exactly. future projects. It, it and means protocols. that newer and, protocols don't um, need to we, reinvent yeah. the wheel every single time. I mean, it, it's it's pretty ruthless, um, but that sort of level of innovation moves the whole community forward, and it 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 does mean. And, and maybe Bancor learns. I mean, in its DNA, they have so much of this as an advantage, and if they can come up with V four and a solution around that, I'm sure they'll be the first ones to implement it, and they will benefit as a result out of this, right? I mean, um, there's a reason why they're one of the you know longest um, Dex is out, you know, that have been the Dex around the longest. Um, yeah, even longer than Uniswap, right? I mean, they were in sort of the first yeah, big I, 2015. Yeah, way, I, I really right? hope they can ICO work way. this out because, uh, as, as we discussed, it's a, a very impressive team. Yeah. Look, um, super interesting and excited to have you on, on this chat and, and really thank you for all your time, you know, sort of and insights, really good learning, and, and, and really love your contributions to the Truthflation community uh, and participation, and, and that's how we stumbled across each other. Um, how can people follow you? 
and, and learn and, and sort of, yeah, learn already, you know, follow. Yeah. Do you have a newsletter? Do you have, I know you have a Twitter account. Um, how yeah. can they follow yeah. you and find out more and, um, stay yeah, tuned thanks. and I've just got a Twitter for the insights. time being, uh, it's at economizely, um, on Twitter. Uh, no newsletter for now, uh, but that's definitely something that's being worked on in the background. So perhaps in the next couple of months, we'll see that. But would love to hear from you guys um, on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, so please follow, um, you know, <laughs> read the book, War and Peace, if you haven't seen it, or find a good modern BBC documentary on that uh, or show. Um, some really good, um, you know, sort of check out Token Sniffer, I think, um, and, and, and sort of follow the Economizer, you know, Economizer Lee um, on Twitter. And thank you super uh, for your insights and your time. And yeah, look forward to circling back thank maybe so sometime much. in the future. Pleasure. Thank you. This was Stefan Roost and Economizer. You can follow Economizer on Twitter at Economizerly. That's E-C-O-N-O-M-I-S-E-R-L-Y. You can also follow Stefan on Twitter at sroost99. That's S-R-U-S-T-9-9. And you can find the Super Excited with Stefan Roost podcast on all major podcast platforms and on YouTube on the Stefan Roost channel. Thank you for listening.